You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Father, who is majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, a worker of wonders. We ask, Lord, that in our time together, we can experience you in new ways, not just new for the sake of experience, but a newness because of the vastness of your grace and your mercy and your power that you intend for us to have in our lives. And we will never be able to completely fathom or um, comprehend or even experience all the things you have for us. But Lord, for our lives now and for eternity, we're going to be singing your praises because of your awesome generosity to us in Christ. I pray Lord, today, Lord, as we look in your word and we learn how we can speak the truth of the gospel into our own hearts and our minds on a daily basis, that you would enable us, Lord, to uh, not just develop a skill um, or to think about a skill, but to have, um, as Paul prayed to the Ephesians, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that the depth and the breadth of the gospel would just grip us in ways that it would transform us. And we move forward in this time, Lord, with that expectation. Amen. No one is more influential in your life than you. Because no one talks to you more than you do. Seems like a kind of obvious observation of life. But what you say when you talk to yourself, and we all talk to ourselves throughout the day, what you say is the biggest impact it has on your attitudes, your emotions, your perceptions, your expectations of life, and even your actions. The question is, what do you talk to yourself about? Especially when you face stresses and anxieties that we all have in life. And in a similar vein, uh, preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher, well-known preacher in the early part of the last century or the middle of the century, wrote a book decades ago called Spiritual Depression. And it's a horrible title of a book because that's not what it's really about, but it's, it's about how the gospel transforms us and changes us. And um, in there he has this quote. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Lloyd-Jones is saying we listen to the rambles, some of the nonsense we keep telling ourselves, and that ended up causing us great unhappiness. But instead, he goes on to advocate, we need to intentionally talk to ourselves. When you, when you talk to yourself, what, when you listen to what you say, as Lloyd-Jones says, what is it that you hear? What are the things that you go through? And, and, and there's lots of things, and it depends on days and moods and fatigue, and I know there's lots of things that play into that, but sometimes we say, you know, I can't help but being angry. I can't help but being sad or fearful or discouraged. You fill in the blank, whatever is appropriate for you. I, I can't help that. That's just the way it is. Or why can't other people just accept me for who I am? Or maybe um, I'm glad I'm not them because I'm a lot better than they are. Or, you know, I really know what a jerk I am. I can't believe that God would love me and put up with a guy like me. We listen to those kind of talks or something similar. You fill in the blanks all the time. But instead, the Bible tells us, and Jesus tells us, and Paul's going to tell us today, that we should be talking to ourselves. Not just listening, but intentionally saying things to ourselves. We need to say things that are truth. And mature Christians, and one of the marks of being a mature Christian, is that we live our lives, Paul says, in step with the truth of the gospel, and we do that by intentionally and routinely preaching the gospel to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to ourselves. When you talk to yourself throughout the day, do you preach the gospel 
to yourself. I use the word preach intentionally. Some people are put off. It's a religious word. You preach on Sundays. And we, we, in our culture, it's a negative thing. Don't preach to me. But I, I'm using preach instead of speaking or just talking because preaching is intended to be, it's, in its understanding of the word biblically, is to proclaim, to herald news, to, to speak truth powerfully and persuasively. We're just not to chit-chat with ourselves. God wants us to powerfully preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves in and out throughout our day. And this idea of personalizing the gospel, putting it in the first person and talking to ourselves is not only taught biblically, we have examples. Paul says in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says it in the first person. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul there is preaching the gospel to himself, saying this is the gospel, it's true about me. I'm going to put my name in there. So preaching the gospel to ourselves is, is very biblical, something that we do. And we can do this very proactively or very reactively. We can say, you know what, I'm going to routinely rehearse the gospel. I'm going to learn things and say it over and over again. And like we have a Bible reading time or prayer time, we can do that over and over again. I'm going to anticipate the frustrations or fractures that I have in my life, and I'm going to think about the gospel in light of them intentionally. I'm going to anticipate things. I'm going to uh, speak the truth of the gospel to reorient myself because I know I drift away from God. So I'm going to have to keep myself on track. I'm going to see, talk to myself about the gospel on a regular basis. It's like exercising to stay healthy. You don't just exercise, well, some people do, once a year to expect to be healthy. You need to do a little bit all the time for head of a good effect. Preaching the gospel routinely is like that. But we can also do it reactively. And what I mean by that is when things happen, when events happen, when stresses, frustrations, temptations in our lives come, we can pause and within moments, and it only takes a few moments, intentionally speak the gospel, the truth of the gospel to our lives. We find ourselves sinning. We find ourselves struggling. We find ourselves suffering. Whatever the environment may be, we can pause and speak the gospel. It's more like, instead of exercising, this is more like when you're sick, you take medicine. It's, it's more circumstance-oriented. I'm ill now. I'm going to take the pillow of the gospel to help me recover from whatever it is that is illness is causing me pain. At the men's breakfast last, yesterday, we were talking about prayer, and one of the things that came up was, okay, is it good to pray routinely, or is it good to pray spontaneously throughout the day as God leads? And the answer is both. It's not either or. And preaching the gospel to ourselves isn't either or. It's all the time. We should have both when we do that. Monica and I were talking a little bit about this this week and, and some things, and she was just talking about how some people that she's been talking to are, the way she described it, is tired. They're just tired. Life is draining them. Just the routine and the, and the strength, the energy, spiritual and emotional energy is just going down and down. And, and, and uh, they need to be filled up. And, and, and her... Her response to me, you know, not everybody gets to read all the books you do, Rice. So what expectation you have that your answer to everything is here's a book to read, right? Okay, which is true, by the way, okay? Um, but, I, but as I thought about that, I said, you know what? You don't need, if you know the basic elements of the gospel, you don't need to read a book. We already know what it is. We need to, those times we're tired, we're, we need to be filled up. We just need to already focus on what we already know is true and then say it to ourselves. It, it may drastically change the way you feel. It may just help a little bit. But it's something we can all do regardless of the state we're in. In Ephesians 1, we saw that Paul laid out this. It's just an incredible chapter of the blessings that we have in Christ. And he talks about, it goes, he just goes through this massive list of being chosen and holy and blameless and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and having a new destiny. And he says, this is all true for you. And then he goes and he prays for them. He prays for them and he tells them what he prays. And he prays that they would know God and that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they may uh, know three things. The hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. Hope, riches, power. Paul says God has already given you that. God helped them see that it's already theirs. But sometimes... I don't know about you, but for me, there's a gap. I, I know what Paul says. I read it. I study it. I preach that. But sometimes I know, in, in conf we call it confessional faith. These are the things we say we believe, or for some of us, what we're told we're supposed to believe. This is true. 
but there's a gap between that and what's really true in our life, our functional faith. In other words, how we live our life day to day. I I don't always feel like I'm full of hope, riches, and power as I'm going through the day-to-day routine. And I'm going to guess that many of you feel the same thing. But Paul says that's true. That's true. So how do we close that gap? How do we close the gap to what God says is true, those blessings, and the stresses and strains and anxieties of everyday life? And the primary way we can do that, it's not the only way, but it is a primary way that we can do that, is learn the skill of preaching the gospel to ourselves. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul tells them in Ephesians 1, here's the blessings. Then he prays for them, and then he goes, and what is the chapter 2 of ours, he turns his attention now to the gospel. And I think he does this, obviously he does it intentionally. He said, here's all this awesome stuff. Now I want to tell you, and, and for us it's 10 verses, I want to tell you some things how do you get there? And that's Ephesians. That's what we're going to look at today. And what I want you to do is this. Is see Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we're going, to work through it. we're going to work through it this morning, as a framework. We call it a framework. It's, just, it's, just, it's not in and of itself. There's no hocus pocus. It's not, it's not an incantation. It's not a magic formula. But it gives us the pegs. It gives us the framework in which we can build an understanding of the gospel. And for me, I like frameworks so that allows me to think through, remember how I can speak the gospel. We talk about giving our testimony with the framework, gospel framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We, we've been talking, Josh and I, about the four qu- gospel questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What are we to do? Those are frameworks. It helps us remember. Paul gives us in those, these ten verses a framework. divided. I'm going to divide it into three places. Our life without God. The God who gives us new life. And then our life with God. And within that framework, we can learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. And as I do this, I want you to think a little bit about your life. You know your life, okay? What, what are some of the anxieties? What are some of the stresses that you face on a regular basis? And as we work through this, think about how you may take what we're doing and apply it to yourself and, and preach the gospel to yourself. So firstly, we have, we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves by reminding ourselves it might seem kind of uh, non-intuitive, about our life without God first. We see this um, in verses 1 and 3, verses 1 through 3. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he gives us a summary of what it is to have life without God. And he's saying to you, Ephesians, you were there. Notice the past tense. It, you, you were dead. You, you once walked this way. Once is not simply one time as in an event. It's at uh, previously, before now, at one time, you used to walk. This was the characteristic of your life. This is how you not just literally walked, but lived your life. And you were, past tense, by nature, children of wrath. This is what it was before they knew Christ. And he says in there that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This dead is spiritual inability. We are unable, completely unable, like a dead person, to respond particularly to God, and do anything about it. It's, it's being alienated from God. It's, it's the, there's a stark difference between someone who is dead and is alive. And we know that's obvious, but sometimes we behave like it's not. Uh, we have uh, picture windows in front of our, on the side of our house in front of our dining room and living room, and occasionally, because of the reflection in them, birds will fly into them, funk, and they break their neck and they drop, and they're dead. And the boys find them, Okay? And they'll take a stick and they'll poke it. Okay? Get up, bird. Fly away, bird. And we say, the bird's dead. Oh, okay. Get up, bird. Fly away, bird. We, we sometimes treat people the same way in our deadness. We, we expect, oh, it's dead, but it's there. We, before we knew Christ, we're here, but we're dead. We're unable to get up and fly away. Spiritually speaking, in relationship to God speaking. And yet we keep, people keep poking and we keep thinking that, oh, we can do that. 
This also tells us that we're in bondage. We're in slavery. If you look at the language, we're following the ways of the world. We're following the devil. We are carrying out the desires of our body and mind. This is bondage language. This is freedom language. We live, without Christ, we live under the deception that we lead our lives. The Bible says we don't lead our lives. We're always following. The question is, what are we following? And this passage gives us three things that we follow that control us without Christ. First of all, he says, you follow the course of this world, the flow, the movement of the world. The world directs your life and my life without Christ more than we want to admit. People, individuals, society, living as, as if God doesn't exist or even in direct opposition to God. That's what the world is in Paul's letters. It's uh, pervasive philosophies and values, expectations, peer pressures to conform and be accepted. All those things we yield to and we follow the crowd so that we can be accepted. And we're inundated with these influences through the media and through just our family and our friends and the paces we work and go to school. The world molds us and moves us along the way. Paul says that we, without Christ, follow that. He also says that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is Satan, the devil. The demonic forces of evil, they're real. In our Western American culture, we dismiss them, which is part of the deception. The Bible does not dismiss them. The Bible does not make light of Satan or the demonic forces. In fact, later in Ephesians, twice, Paul's going to take in chapter 4 and then in chapter 6, is going to directly address how we interact with the devil. He's going to say in chapter 4, watch out for being angry because when you do, you give an opportunity to the devil to influence your life. And then later in chapter 6, he's going to say, put on the full armor of God. And he's going to list that armor. Why? So we can take our stand against the devil. The the satanic forces, the occult, the New Age movement, um, all those kind of things, horoscopes, cults, all those things, all that spiritual influence we want guidance and provision for, the Bible says is is demonic. And our world is, is moved along by those demonic forces. Satan even had the audacity to offer Christ the world in his temptation because Satan knows, I influence it all. And then he says the third, the third one. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the things that we think about and the cravings of our, our flesh, our desires, and, and the, the sinful nature that we have. And, and we can go on about that. That is a very essence of who everybody is, is, is under that pressure. And Paul later talks about the works of the flesh in Galatians. And he, just so we have an object lesson of the variety of forces moving against us, he gives us a list in Galatians, one of his many lists. It, it, he says the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And things like these. We, we are driven by those desires of the flesh, Paul says. We need to remember that. So the first thing about preaching the gospel to ourselves is remember where we came from without God. It is, it is there. And these battles, these influences, are powerful influences that control our lives when we're not in Christ. We still battle them as Christians, but we're not under their domain. We are not, we are not enslaved to them. We are not and bondage to them. We can have and do have victory in Christ over all three of those areas. Paul's going to tell us later in Ephesians, we just have to walk in that victory. And then he goes on and says, you are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We get to have, our identity is God's just punishment is pointed at us. God's just punishment is pointed at us because we're in values, because we're dead in our sins. He has said, you all, we are all. Interesting there, he he changes it and says, like, we all that way. He, he now includes himself in this. He's not just talking about Ephesians. Paul here talks about himself in this struggle. Sometimes I wonder when we talk about where the, the sinful nature and, and the powers and influences, um, we need to remember as Christians, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, that we live in a fallen world. That's what we talk. We live in a sinful world where these forces and these things that run, not only that God doesn't exist, but he run against them, are the standard uh, operations of the way everybody thinks and feels apart from Christ. And sometimes I'm surprised that we're surprised that life isn't easier. 
that we think, oh, it should be problem-free. It should be easy. It should be nicer than it is. And when we feel that way, we're being deceived. We're lying to ourselves because the Bible says we live in a fallen world. It's a mess right now. We shouldn't be shocked. There's an answer, but it is a mess right now apart from Christ. So we preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of our life without God. With, uh, without God. And then he goes, and then he says, he turns our attention from that. He describes that, and then he does a quick about face. And now he wants to talk about the God who gives us new life. In verses 1 through 3, Paul says that we are helpless, hopeless, harassed, and harnessed by evil powers. And then in verse 4, he starts with two very powerful words. But God. But God. Verses 4 through 7, he says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul here turns our attention. This is the way the world is messed up without God. But God, and now let's just talk about God before he even talks about all the things he does. God, excuse me, he, he describes God being rich, wealthy in mercy. God isn't frugal in mercy. God isn't stingent in mercy. He's not, hey, I only got a little bit to go around. No, God's rich in mercy. He also says, because of the great love with which he loved us. His motivation doesn't come from our lovability or that we are lovely. It's from himself, his character, because of his great love with which he loved us. In fact, in verse 5, he contrasts, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God loved us even when we were dead and unable to earn or deserve any of his love. He, because of who he is, loves us. He loves us. We often forget and miss the hugeness of this language. We, we hear uh, about rich and mercy, greatness of love, and, and they seem kind of words. And we miss the magnitude of what it's like. I, I've driven a, I was talking to a guy recently about driving across country. I've driven across the country eight times. And I've taken northern, southern routes, all these different routes. And I was talking to a guy recently about that, and we were talking, sharing some of our experiences. And, uh, and, and then the question came up, so where's the place that you really hated driving through? And both of us, on cue, said the same place. We hate driving through Texas. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure God created some beautiful parts of Texas. <laughs> I've never seen them. I've never seen them. Okay? It's flat. It's barren, it's scrub, it goes, it's hours of mind-numbing brown. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And you're driving, and you can't leave. You can't just say, I'm going to go this way. No, it's more of the same, okay? Josh got up here and shared, we were standing on the side of a hill, looking down the gorge at Mount Hood, and probably Mount Adams behind him. That's gorgeous. We, we sometimes, though, live our lives like we're driving through Texas, and it feels like we're driving through Texas, right? This, this is monotonous. This is old. This is harsh. And we forget the view of God's given us standing on a mountain looking at hood down the gorge. We forget the awesomeness of that. And when you see that, you don't really, if you've only raised in Texas, I'm sure it looks great because that's all you know. Okay? But, but, if you, but if you've seen some gorgeous Rockies and gorgeous scenery, it, it's really, it really sucks. And therefore, part of... Part of this is for us as Christians, when we get glimpses of the awesomeness of God, all that other stuff really does suck. But we forget how awesome, we forget how beautiful he is. Paul's trying to say that here. It's great. His, his, um, the, the riches is immeasurable. That's pretty big. That's a lot. He can't even measure it, the riches that are in Christ. And that's the God who has reached down. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we deserved his wrath, he says, nope, you don't get wrath. I'm going to give that to Christ. Instead, because of my love, because of my mercy, I'm going to shower all these blessings on you. And that's what you get. We, when we struggle with our feelings of being loved or being lovable, or we struggle with being accepted or being acceptable, we should learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. We should learn to preach the gospel ourselves. Remind ourselves of these kinds of verses where Paul says, 
because of the great love with which he loved you, Christ came. And, and even when we were dead, even before we could do anything, he poured out his mercy and grace on us. That's awesome. That's accepted. That's loved. And we didn't earn any of that. And yes, that's the truth of the gospel we need to remind ourselves of. Paul says in Romans, he says, but God shows us his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is so powerful. Again, when we were still sinners, when we were still dead, deserving judgment, God showed. He didn't just hypothetically say, I love people. He said, you know what? I'm sending my son. My son, I'm going to deal with wrath, but my son's going to absorb that wrath. And he's going to instead give grace and mercy. And the world's going to know my love because I showed my love in the death of my son in Christ on their behalf. That's, that's awesome love that should grip us. That's the love we need to remind ourselves of when we're not feeling lovable. And Paul goes on in here and says what, what God has done for us. He made us alive together with Christ. It's, it's new life. You formerly were dead. Now you're made alive. You're new creations. Your new birth. You're given life all over again. I, he's not just revamping the old one. He's given us new stuff. And, and then he has this parenthetical phrase. It's kind of grammatically out of place. He goes, and by grace you've been saved. Just to make sure you guys are clear on this, Paul's saying, all this mercy and stuff and this love, it's by grace that God has given it to you. Your undeserved favor. He says, we have been raised up with him, with Christ. We, with this, the resurrection, the imagery is Christ died for our sins. We identified he died for our sins. But when Christ was raised from the dead, we, we were raised with him. We were in him. And, and then it goes on, seated him at, with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the ascension. Christ is in here. He's with the Father, on, standing next to the throne. We, in essence, are with him. So we are united or connected with Christ. And this is all the with him and in Christ language of Ephesians. We are co-alive with Christ. We are co-resurrected with Christ. We are co-reigning in the kingdom with Christ. That's who we are. That's what God has done for us. And back to Ephesians 1, he says, I want the eyes of your hearts to shine. I want there to be a deep, deep understanding that shakes your core of your being. And he names the hope and the riches. But the one that always gets me is the power one. The power, he goes, in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? If he had stopped there, we're like, okay, he's got a lot of power. But he continues, according to the working of his great might. Still, that's pretty good. And then he tells us what kind of power that is. Verse 20, that he, the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You hear what he's saying there? The power that is available to work in our life now is the exact same power that rose Christ from the dead and has seated him in heavenly places. It's not just hypothetical. Christ really rose from the dead. He really is in heavenly places. That's real power. Paul's saying, I want them to understand that this life-transforming power that God used in raising Christ is the same power that you get. Paul tells us that God saved us from the penalty of sin. God is saving us from the power of sin. And someday he will save us from the presence of sin. Paul talked about in this who God is and what he's done for us. He also says what God will do. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. Doesn't just mean eternity. I used to always think, well, yeah, someday when we're in heaven, you know, playing our harps, floating around, uh, then we'll say, hey, God is great. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying in the coming ages. In other words, from the time we have new life on, that means today, God wants to show, he wants to demonstrate visibly in our lives the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Think about that. He wants us to know that now. He, God is eager. God is, wants, he, his intention is that that immeasurable riches of his grace, we see it now, we experience it now, we feel it now. And he wants it to be shown to us. The question is, are we looking for it? Are we looking for it? The Bible says God wants to give that to us. Uh, and the question I have is, you know what? I, I wonder if I miss a lot of it because I'm not looking for it. In Acts chapter 11, 
uh, the, they started church. Some guys go up to Antioch from, and they start a church. And the guys in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem said, hey, wait, we heard there's a church up there. Let's send somebody up there to check it out, see if it's legit. So they send Barnabas. And, and what's amazing about this is the story goes on. There's a lot of details. But one of the things that amazed me and just really struck me a number of years ago was that when Barnabas goes up, we're told in Acts 11, that when he came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God and was glad. And then he encouraged them to continue in the Lord. Here he, he saw the grace of God and was glad. I don't know if I would go to a church to check it out that I would look for grace. I would look for truth. I would look for things they're doing right. But Bartimaeus had the wisdom to look for grace. He had, to, he had the understanding of what to see in people's lives that demonstrated God's grace working in their life. He saw it and was glad. That's been a challenge to me, to be able to look in people's lives and say, where, where is the grace of God in this person's life? Not like I'm taking an inventory and checking it, but do I even have that perception Because when I do, the result will be, I'll be glad. They'll be glad. Do we speak that way to people? In his book, You Can Change, Tim Chester, I think, does a great job summarizing this, that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, need to focus on God more than us. We keep coming back to us, but he focuses on God. And he gives us the four G's. And Josh has talked about this in the past. He gives us the four G's. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. The gospel, when we preach the gospel ourselves, we need to talk more about God and who he is to ourselves than we talk about ourselves. The third thing that Paul says is not only we need, when we preach the gospel ourselves is our life without God, and then our life with God, the, the God who gives us new life, but our life with God. And he says this in verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says in this, three things in this that mark our life when we walk with God. One is faith. One is faith. Faith is at, that we are saved through faith, but we're also, uh, we also continue to live by that same faith. It's just not a one-time decision. Yeah, I believe in God, so that it's, I always have this confident trust. I always rely on his grace, his mercy, his provision. Not just to be saved, to, to come to him, to be reconciled, but also day to day. I live this life by faith in the Son of God. It's that confident trust. And the reality of what true is Jesus, it's true for me. Our faith is personal. It's also something we continue to live by. So it's marked by faith. But he also talks about our identity. It's a new identity. He says our identity is, is what's true about us because God said it is true. And it's something that God's doing in us and working through us. We talked about this before, identities. Paul begins by writing his letter to Anybody know what he called them? Anybody remember what Paul said to them? You are what? Saints, holy ones. You didn't earn it. God calls you saints because you're saints. That's their identity. That's how Paul addresses them and speaks to them. They're saints. We, use, we at Red Sea have in our pathways used three identities of servants and family and ambassadors. Those are what's true about us because what God has said for us. But he says in here in verse 10, we are his workmanship. His workmanship. That's, that's our identity. Workmanship means craftsmanship. It means creation. Um, the, the point there, the wordage there, is meaning not just that it's a thing, but it's, it's a, it emphasizes a skillful or intelligent design. The word is used, for example, of a potter making pottery. He's a craftsman. Okay? When, you see, a, when a, you see a really good piece of artwork, you, don't say, you can say, well, that's a great piece of artwork. But what it shows is, that's a really good artist. And, and it's also used of, of poetry and, and language. So when you read something poet, it was written by a craftsman. The point isn't that the poetry by itself or the literature is really good, which it is. But what it points to is that the author is really, really good. And that's what Paul's saying. Our identity isn't just what we are, but our identity, people look at us and say, wow, God is great. Wow, God is gracious. Because we're his workmanship that demonstrates who we are. 
And those four gospel questions that we've been saying. Who is God? What has he done? Paul's already talked about that in this passage. And then what are we? That's what he's talking about now. We are his workmanship. And then he says, what are we to do? What are we to do? And he goes on that. We live out that identity in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. It is very strategic on Paul's part that verses 8 and 9 say, you don't earn anything by your works. There's nothing you can do to boast. But you know what? God's got some works for you to do. Side by side, same sentence. So it's not, they're not antithesis to each other, not in conflict. In fact, the language there that you should walk in this way, you should live this way, is a direct correlation to, remember in the beginning, verse 1, he says that we are dead in our sins in which we once walked found the world, the devil, and our flesh. We lived that way, but now he intentionally uses the same word and says, we live this way, exactly the opposite of what we were before we were the Christ. That's why, to shamelessly make another plug, we have Pathways. Pathways is designed to answer that question. What, what does it look like to do these good works that God has designed beforehand that we should walk in? Well, that's what we have designed to say. You know, this isn't all there is, but this is helpful so that we can move on and we can live lives in a way that reflects God's working in our life. We need, to, we need to be careful with our language as we preach the gospel to ourselves. As we talk about our life without God, our, our, the God who gives us new life, and our life with God, we need, how we say these things to ourselves is important. This is what I mean. We shouldn't say, we, we shouldn't say, I'm just about to tell you, you, say, you shouldn't say shouldn't. Um, saying, I shouldn't do this or that or the other thing, emphasizes effort and then needing to work harder. That's a legalism. I shouldn't. We should be saying, I, need, I don't need to. That emphasizes the freedom that we get in Christ. For example... What we, what we do not need to say, what we shouldn't say, we shouldn't, we, this, is what we, this is the wrong thing to say. I shouldn't fear other people's opinions. I shouldn't fear other people's opinions. That can form a legalism. I shouldn't do that. Now I've got to try hard not to do that. What we should say is, I don't have to fear other people's opinions. I don't have to. Because God's opinion of me is already set. And it's a lot bigger than any opinion anybody else is going to get. You see the difference? I shouldn't means i got to try hard. I don't need to. Um, the other way we say it is we say, I have to. We have, I have to do this. I have to do that. And again, that can, that can emphasize the effort and the working where we get to say, I get to do this or that. For example, I have to forgive the person who hurt me. I have to. It's a wrong way of saying it. It's, it's a harsher way of saying it. We should, what we can say is, I get to forgive the person who hurt me. I get to do that. This is, comes out of freedom. I don't know if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. Paul talks about in here, so we get grace so that no one can boast. And Paul talks a lot in his letters about boasting. And we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in the Lord. And I've been thinking a lot, not about just about boasting, but Paul's doing that. And talking about what does it mean when we, when we talk this way about ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves. And, and one of the things we do is we do trainings, and some of us at Red Sea have done this, is learn to tell our story using the model of the gospel framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we teach that in some of the other leadership trainings that I do. And, and we have guys um, tell their story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and we go through that. And we hear it. And most times people say it. They say, I did this. I went here. I was raised here. Uh, th- this is all the horrible stuff I did before. Um, this is when I found God, and this is what I did. And now this is what I'm doing with God. I'm going to church and stuff like that, and, which is fine. But the problem with it, and it's the first question, the, the diagnostic question we ask as we train guys is this. Is Jesus the hero of your story? If we talk more about what I did and I do when we share our story, then Jesus isn't the hero. Jesus isn't the hero. That's not of grace. It's not of mercy. It's not because of our identity in Christ. It's because we did this and did that. And one of the things I've been challenged by is not just when I do my story to make sure Christ is the hero, but to think through my day 
at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day and say, you know what? From this day or this week or this month or thinking about a specific event, is Jesus the hero? When I reflect on that, can I boast in what the Lord is doing in my life? Or do when I think through all those events, do I think mostly about what I did, how I did it, or how I shouldn't have done that? You, you understand the difference? To stop and think and reflect and say, is Jesus the hero, not just of our life as a whole, but day to day? And when we can say, you know what, I'm not sure that he is, that's an opportunity for us to speak the gospel to ourselves. What I'd like to do is to actually try some of this. Um, and um, we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> I, I was going to give some examples, and I decided, I told Monica and I told Josh, I decided not to script some examples. Okay? I decided not to just meet, okay, here's an example. I mean, just because I could spend a couple hours coming up with it. And what I'm trying to tell you is you can do it on the fly. So I want us to do it on the fly. Okay? So if you have a Bible, and we can't show the whole thing, I would, or your phone, or whatever it is you use, if you want to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, just using that as a framework, just using that as a framework, I would, and I asked you at the beginning, think of some anxieties, think of some stresses you might have in your life. I want somebody, or maybe a couple people, to be bold and just briefly describe a stress and anxiety and say, and then we together will preach the gospel as if it was ours to ourselves. Does that make sense? So, so anybody want to say something that's a stress and anxiety that they have that they would like us to walk through preaching the gospel to it? I think it's worth to a baby. You have to give birth to a baby? <laughs> so is that somehow top of mind? Okay. So what about that bothers you, concerns you, stresses you? The physical pain. Okay. Okay. So the baby's born, you get to discipline it right away, move on. Okay. Okay. So there's an anxiety of anticipation of an event in her life, their life, but her life, of the, the, the anxiety of the physical birth. So let's think about this. Think about the passage, Ephesians 1. Through 10. Let's just think of the first three verses. Yeah. What could something we can say or she could say to herself to say, I'm going to preach the gospel to myself anticipation. So what is something she could say out of those first three verses? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But through those verses. Through the Ephesians verses. This is the hard part. I know, because I was doing it, Josh and I were doing it, and he's throwing off all this stuff. And Monica did the same thing. No, through Ephesians. Yes, you are in good company. And, and if you preach the gospels, if this is not new, and I'm sure for some of you this is not new, then there's all sorts of things you can say. I'm just trying to help us discipline ourselves by using Ephesians. What's some of the things that we, she might say? She might not park in the first three verses, by the way. Okay, so we know, okay, in the first view, we know that the, the pain of sin is because we live in a fallen world, right? The, the physical, specifically in Genesis 3, the physical anguish of childbirth comes from because we live in a fallen world. That's the way we are. That's, that's re- making us aware of the reality that we live in that, fallen, in that fallen world. And there's a lot of pressures to that. The second part of preaching the gospel itself would be that. God is gracious. God is merciful, right? I know that what, what do you know about this event and your relationship with the Lord? Not just you, but anybody. You mean related to childbirth? Well, yeah. I would say the fact that you know, we've been given this new life in Christ Jesus. Okay. It's a metaphor. I mean, that's, I, mean I guess it's a metaphor. I wasn't looking for that. But his love for you, his care for you, there's nothing beyond that's going to happen to you emotionally, physically, that God isn't within the realm of his A, control, and B, his love and mercy, his grace. So if it's happening because it's, it's part of his, lo- his, his loving you, then you don't lose that. If you, does that make sense? You, that's true for you. It doesn't make the pain necessarily go away, but it, it makes it true for you. 
uh, and, and his grace. He promised that he would demonstrate his grace. Grace, by the way, and, and, and those kind of things are needed when they're undeserved. That's why they're grace. We, we think that, that being problem-free or like that is what we get. No, what we get is the power to get us through the difficulties. So at the end of the birth and saying, you know what, this was painful, but I really did have a joy that is, exceeds that of the actual pain. Um, I don't know if that means. That's right. And, and are you doing the work of God by having a child? The answer is yes. Uh, back in Genesis, we were created to, to be fruitful and multiply. We were, we were created to reproduce. So therefore, just doing that means we, we are, you are operating under the, com- the, uh, the command of God to do those things. And then to parent that child and children into, uh, in a way that brings glory to Christ in the difficulties. That child is going to, this might come as a shock to some of you, so may, may sin occasionally and dis- be disobedient and frustrating Okay? Um, no? No. Not in, not in the last two minutes, at least, okay? Okay? That, that child, that object lesson of a child misbehaving, should remind us of us and God. And God still loves, God still disciplines, God still works through that. Um, but, but he's still going to do what's best for that child. Um, and so do we. Uh, we still do what's best for the child, and so God does to us. I don't know. It's, Let's try another one. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Okay. He, he said that they're trying. Right the second. Okay. He's buying a house on Tuesday, and he's incredibly anxious about the finances. We, we are correct. But you're doing it right now, Okay. Okay, so we are, we are supposed to hear back on our offer on a house tomorrow, so let's compare anxiety, okay? No. Um, we can't afford it, so it doesn't matter. So we just, <laughs> okay? Um, so there's, there's good, anxiety. So what, what would be the first three verses? In our fallen nature, what would be the thing that would cause us anxiety about finances? When we preach the gospel self, if we're without God, what is it, what are those things that cause us anxiety? Our needs won't be met. Okay, or I have to control everything. When the irony is, we can't control it, right? That that the house we get is it the right house and all those kind of things. Okay, because of cultural pressures and those kind of things. Um, we could say, um, yeah, let's let's move on to the <laughs> to the gospel part. Of the uh, who, what does it tell us about God? What can we say to Jim? That helps relieve anxiety about God. Did I say that right? That's right. That's right. God's, God, God's not concerned about it. I don't know if that's helpful, Jim, but God's not concerned. Like Josh says, he's got a, he's got a cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe he can sell some of those cattle and give them to you, okay? Yeah, God's rich in grace, but, God, but God's provision exceeds just the material. It's material. He cares for those things, but he, he exceeds those things. And um, one of the things we have to do is, does God is more, more concerned about, about the finances or about Jim and the family? Right. The, the thing we, we try to look for job or we try to look for the bank or we try to look for those people as the great provider in place of God being the great provider. And also we know that by this passage that God is doing a work 
and the family, and Jim, not just he's the one to share it to Jim's heart. And that the main thing he's concerned about through this whole process, we know, isn't just that they get a nice house and to live, but that they learn more about God in the process. That they learn. Just we talked about that last week. Praying, he we pray to change our circumstances. He wants to change us. We pray for things, and God wants to give us Himself. And that's what Paul's saying here in this passage too. That's where he said, this is the mess, but God, let me remind you about how awesome God is, and all these things will compare, pale in comparison to the generosity he has given us in Christ. It also has, helps us to understand his, uh, his grace and that we don't earn his favor. So if the thing falls through, okay, this, this is our fourth offer on a house, okay? The other three have been bought out from underneath us. Two of them with cash. I don't know what this cash stuff is, but apparently people have it, okay? Okay? And they buy the house with cash. So we're ahead. this is our fourth attempt, okay? But, oh well, um, it's still, God will provide in that way, okay? Okay, we're, we're running, time-wise, we need to, we need to stop. Um, I hope this is encouraging, and I want to remind you as we close uh, about, uh, about the, the skill of just reminding, and we limited ourselves to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's a tool that I use frequently, helping as I walk through with people, hey, look at your life, look at God, look, where are you going? Just, I encourage you to do that. We have discussion sheets for your home community uh, and for you to take home and to use to help you think through that. And there are a lot of other things to, that you can say. I just want to close by reminding you of what we speak, how we preach the gospel to ourselves every single week in worship, and that's through communion. We, God, uh, Jesus said when he, and he, um, when he introduced the Lord's Supper, as we know it, as a regular part of what we do, he did it to remind us, to, 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 and so you declare his death until he comes. You preach my death to yourselves every time you take communion until I return. So he wants us to preach the gospel to ourselves. So I invite you, if you are a Christian, if you respond to the gospel, repentance and faith, and, and, you're, and you uh, come up as we do worship in a few minutes, and you can take the Lord's Supper, take the bread and the, and the wine, and remind yourself that he died for you. Remind yourself that he demonstrated his love for you in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Be thankful for that love. And ask for him that your eyes of your hearts will be enlightened, that you may know that hope, that riches, and that power. And that's what he wants to remind us of. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you again for your mercy, your grace, and how awesome you are. And I pray, Lord, as we worship and take communion, we will remember that we do so not because we deserve it or are lovable, but because you loved us and extended that love to us in Christ. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.